from Freie Universität Berlin, I'm Jonas Benz, and this is the Affected Colonialism podcast. On January 8, 2023, after Jair Bolsonaro had lost Brazil's presidential election, hundreds of his supporters stormed the capital to oust the new president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. This dramatic event manifested fierce conflicts over the country's political future. Today, we talk with journalist and communication studies scholar Deborah Medeiros about contesting colonial affects in Brazilian politics. Deborah, welcome. Thank you, Jonas. It's great to be here. Deborah, about a year ago, you were already on the Affect and Colonialism podcast. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro was still president of Brazil, and uh, we had a whole episode on how he uses colonial tropes to create political allegiance and how this is resisted by media initiatives of indigenous and black Brazilians. And in the meantime, there has been an election. What has happened in the past year? Yeah, it's been a very intense year in Brazil. I would say the elections, they were very contested. It wasn't clear exactly who would win. It was very tight. But what's important to say is that Lula made it to the second round with a very good margin of votes. And he was already in the first position, so it was kind of expectable that he would win. However, this was an election that was marked by attempts to instrumentalize the government by Bolsonaro to really use the government to push his candidacy as well. He tried everything. He tried making social programs more stronger until after the elections, tried mobilizing the police on the day of the election to really stop voters, especially in the Northeast, to avoid then getting to the voting locations. So there was this instrument of the state, but it didn't work. I think Lula mobilized a lot of different sectors in society and managed to win by a very tight uh, difference, but still it was the highest voting he had since the beginning of his political career. And shortly after the election, many of Bolsonaro's supporters hoped that uh, he could still remain in office and quite a large group also stormed government buildings in Brasilia, presidential palace, uh, national congress, the Supreme Court, um, also to keep Bolsonaro in power and oust Lula. Who are these people and what drives them? Yeah, that's an interesting question. As you know, almost 1,500 people got arrested on the spot on this very day. And uh, when you look at the images that they themselves shot of themselves destroying property, of themselves storming this, those buildings, it's mostly white middle-class Brazilians of all ages, but a lot of elderly people as well, and also people with children. So that was also the narrative when they got arrested and they had to wait to be processed in those uh, halls, like sporting grounds and all that, that they were being held there and harassed, that women with children were there and uh, elderly people. So this status of some of the people is maybe more vulnerable, but not vulnerable enough not to do this kind of stuff, was exploited in the narrative as well. But mostly those are radicalized voters. Not all the people who voted for Bolsonaro, that's important to say, uh, were up for this kind of action, but it was surprisingly a lot of people who were up for this kind of action. They had been camping since Lula won the elections. They set up camps in a lot of cities in Brazil to demand that the military steps in and that the military intervenes and uh, pushes Bolsonaro to power again. So they had a big trust in the military that comes from the military dictatorship. A lot of those people profited maybe from the military dictatorship, their families. 
and they wanted to basically stage a coup at all costs. Uh, they are maybe afraid of the PT government on some level. Maybe it's an identity thing that they feel threatened as white minority in the country. In terms of numbers, they are the minority, although they are the most powerful group due to ra structural racism. And also what is interesting is that a lot of them push this idea that PT, the Workers' Party, is very corrupt. They will destroy Brazil and all that. But when you look into the profiles of the people who participate in the storming of the buildings, there are hundreds of them who have already criminal records for really serious things, from corruption on the local level until drug trafficking, the domestic violence and all that. Although there were many who went to Brasilia to uh, instigate this coup were quite radicalized Bolsonaro voters, it seems as if Bolsonaro, through his media politics and rhetoric during his presidency, already created a kind of atmosphere that would make this possible. What kind of effective strategies had he used to galvanize such a intense support? I think he looked at the Trump playbook and really used it in Brazil very similarly. So he was contesting already uh, our, we have an electronic voting system and he was contesting that and saying it's not reliable. You have to go back to the paper voting system, which was very complicated throughout the years in Brazil. You have a lot of cases of people pressuring their employers to vote for certain candidates. You had paper votes vanishing or being destroyed. So the electronic voting system is very safe. There are no cases of problems with it. But of course, Bolsonaro invested in this. This would be rigged because the electronic voting system is not reliable. Although he got elected all of his political life through this voting system mostly. So this was one point. And the other point was just saying that if the Workers' Party gets to power, it would be a catastrophe for Brazil. So this idea of a dystopia that would start with Lula taking power again, that was very strong. Lula is also a polarizing figure. You have people who love him with all their hearts and see him always as a god and you have people who hate him deeply that they would never vote for Lula. That was also something that helped Bolsonaro get elected the first time around. People prefer to annul their votes than to vote for Lula's candidate. And now with Lula himself running, this hate was mobilized as well by Bolsonaro. You told us that Bolsonaro supporters are mainly white middle class people. And you also said how Bolsonaro and the people around him created this narrative of a dystopian future that would come to Brazil when the Workers' Party gets into power again. Is it then that this dystopian future is also in a way racialized? What role does race play in this kind of strategy? Yes, I think that's a big element there because the Workers' Party's governments, both with Lula and with Dilma, they invested in affirmative action in a way. We don't call it necessarily that, but there were quotas in universities for minoritized groups in Brazil who are actually the majority of the population, black and indigenous people. And a lot of people in those minoritized groups managed to enter university for the first time, had an ascension. A lot of them became public figures, important politicians, journalists, intellectuals. And the discourse in Brazil changed. Racism and structural racism became a topic that is discussed openly now. Very much like in the US, already for some decades now, we have this in Brazil, maybe in the last 10 years, 20 years mostly, especially due to this new intellectual class that took the discussions that are happening already in the black movement and in some parts of the left and made them mainstream in a way. 
So white Brazilians feel threatened by it because before their racism and discrimination was kind of between the lines. Nobody talked much about it and there was no confrontation of those actions that happened. And now there are. So I think there is kind of a projection there. So people say, okay, if we let those minoritized groups become stronger, they will oppress us like they have been doing to minoritized groups for centuries in Brazil. So I think very much, very often the far-right narratives also here in Europe are all about what they are already doing, but they deny they are doing this and say the others will do it. They will try to persecute everybody who isn't like them and they will try to discriminate against uh, the white uh, people in Brazil and all that. It's a very strong narrative. I think there is a lot of fear for being punished for what their relatives in the past have done during the colonization process or in the dictatorship and so on. It is curious, I think, that those people who are basically on the winning side of Brazilian society, middle class, upper middle class, white people who had always uh, or were always able to manage having a good life in Brazil, now become so radicalized that they think their way of life is threatened on such a basic level, while in comparison to racialized minority groups, their status is so much better. So could you break down to us what is this anxious feeling of losing white supremacy in a post-colonial country like Brazil? I think there are a lot of elements that play a role there. The first one is really this projection. Since they have been doing those, those oppressive politics and violations of human rights and all that belong to Brazilian reality and to the white majority's reality, maybe there is a fear that this will get done to them if they lose power. And I think what happens, also you see it in maybe a lot of protests also here in Europe is the claiming the role of the victim. People who structurally probably will never be in an oppressed position or very rarely, they want to be victims in a way. They want to identify with the victims. You see here in the anti-vaccination protests that a lot of the protesters, also middle class, white Germans, were saying, well, we are the new Jews, we are being oppressed and marginalized in our society due to vaccination policies. And you also see this in Brazil. They actually made comparisons between where they had been held in the first days after storming the parliament, which was basically a school football court. They even kept their telephones to stream everything there, so they weren't being mistreated that much. Uh, they made parallels between those places and concentration camps, so really crude victimization strategies. I think this is a big element that people don't know what it is like to be a victim, but they claim this role for themselves whenever they experience some kind of resistance to what they have always been doing. We have now talked a lot about Bolsonaro voters, but in the end, Lula won the election. Can you tell us a little bit about who are those people who are voting for Lula and who also turned out to be the majority now? Yeah, this is a very diverse group. Historically, you have people in the Northeast voting for the Workers' Party very much, especially because the Northeast uh, is historically a poorer region of Brazil. We have many droughts and people usually had or have even now to migrate to the Southeast to find work because their land, for example, doesn't feed their families. So the Northeast really profited a lot from the Workers' Party's policies. Lula comes himself from the Northeast and has this history of migration of his family from Pernambuco to Sao Paulo. And he knows what it's like to be hungry, to not have enough to feed your family. And he really built his policy on making sure that less and less people have to experience that. That was one of his priorities in the first time round when he was president in the early 2000s. And I think this discourse really speaks to people in the Northeast, especially poor people in the countryside, 
Then you have middle classes, I think, in the northeast, in the southeast, in lots of other parts in Brazil, who are maybe more progressive, who go to public universities and really see what also the Workers' Party has done for public universities. Before they came to power in the 2000s, the public universities were almost closing because the previous government with Fernando Henrique Cardoso didn't prioritize public universities. They didn't even have money to pay the electricity bills. So... Lula really invested a lot in higher education and opened new universities, new public universities in a lot of countryside regions. And that was also very important for, for a lot of people in higher education, intellectuals. So they are very thankful as well. And then you also have minoritized groups. They aren't that homogenous. There were supporters of Bolsonaro amongst indigenous people and black people as well, and not that few. But I think in the majority, they support the Workers' Party. Although especially indigenous people were very much yeah, disadvantaged by a lot of the environmental policies of the Workers' parties before, but they still see it as a better alternative as to Bolsonaro, who really wanted as many indigenous people to die as possible. You had with COVID, a lot of indigenous communities lost many people. And uh, now with the Yanomami genocide that is happening, that almost happened, it's being now addressed by the government, but a lot of Yanomami people were in conditions of disease and hunger. And the government of Bolsonaro ignored 70 calls for help that came from the region. And now the government of Lula is addressing this. So... Minoritized groups are part of the voters, and I would say also maybe precarized workers, although you also have a, a difficult heterogeneity there. A lot of people lost their formal jobs in the last couple of years and worked in very precarious situations, maybe like delivering food through apps or working with Uber cars, and that's very precarious. Some of them believe in entrepreneurship and in Bolsonaro, but a lot of them don't want to work in these conditions anymore and really voted for Lula as well. So I would say it's very diverse, the votership. Yeah, let me pick up on that. So it sounds that Bolsonaro's voters are relatively homogenous. They are mostly white. They have mostly a better income. And Lula's voters are a quite diverse set of people and probably a coalition difficult to keep together. So is there then something equally powerful on the left to counter this colonialist white supremacy discourse that is so much supporting Bolsonaro? Is there a kind of counter-effective strategy against this kind of colonialist rhetoric? I think what won Lula's election was a really hope trying to make hope more present in politics again. Because I think what happened with Bolsonaro's government was a kind of nihilistic approach to politics, very destructive and survival of the fittest kind of thing. And I think people were tired of the survival mode with the pandemic as well. And Lula had this idea, it's actually the official motto of his government now, of reconstructing, rebuilding Brazil. So that's very much present there. So it's kind of between the lines, what he's saying is Brazil was already better and it's being destroyed, this vision that we had in the beginning of the 2000s with him, and we want to rebuild it. So it also plays into nostalgia for the people who lived, who experienced the first governments of the workers' parties, and a lot of people had positive change in their lives, like people who studied for the first time, who opened businesses. The economy was booming, also because the worldwide economy was booming. Brazil profited from that. So there were a lot of elements there. Nostalgia for people who already remembered what their lives were like, maybe. And also this idea for younger voters, because this is also a group that voted mostly for Lula. People under 18 who can vote but don't have to, since we have mandatory voting from 18 onwards. 
they were also a part of the electorate because they wanted a better perspective for their lives. And Lula promised to rebuild universities, to make uh, life less expensive as well, to make chances more available there. So I think that was a point as well. No. Yeah, it sounds also that while this colonial power structure that Bolsonaro is advocating is uh, pretty clear, everybody know how it works and everybody knows also who profits from it, this society that begins to supersede these colonial power structures seems to be more vaguely defined. It's not really clear how this shall look like. So how would you assess what is the new government doing or trying to do to overcome colonial power structures? Mm, I think that's very ambivalent uh, with Lula because he needs also conservative sectors of society to a government. This has been an issue as well in the first time around when he governed. Uh, his uh, vice president back then was a industrialist and uh, very much center-right. And now he's also governing with uh, Geraldo Alchemy who is also more to the center-right. He was actually a political rival of Lula earlier on. Um, so he really needs the conservative areas of Brazil as well. And that's, that's difficult then to... Uh, he won't dismantle, I think, colonial structures in Brazil that much, especially not confrontationally. What he does is trying to include as many people as possible in mainstream society. So not changing necessarily the structures of society, but including as many people as possible, and they can make the change, I think. So this is the idea with the quota system for universities. This is the idea of helping, for example, indigenous communities in have more autonomy and regain their territory, which was in, under attack during Bolsonaro's years. And also trying to conciliate very contradictory goals, because you really see this in, in terms of agriculture. So the landless movement supports Lula, mostly. But they didn't get as, main, as much support the first time around. And this time, it's not even discussed, like uh, redistribution of land. But they are still a part of the, of the left and very strong, one of the biggest movements in Brazil. At the same time, you have Lula having to collaborate with people from agribusiness. So, for example, the Minister of Planning and Budget, Simone Tebas, she's a representative of the agribusiness. Her family has a lot of land in her state and she supported Lula very strongly throughout the second round because she was a candidate in the first round herself. And uh, she got this ministry as a thank you. And Lula needs those people as well. So at the same time, you have agribusiness representatives who support also land grabbing. And there are a lot of killings happening, especially of indigenous leaders who make claims to land that is in the hands of major landowners who basically do exportation, agriculture. And then you have both in his government. And he has to conciliate both. They, he has to make both happy. And this will mean at some points one side will be disappointed and on other, po other points another side will be disappointed. So this will be a challenge to dismantle certain colonial dynamics. I don't think this will be successful completely. At the same time, um, Lula or his presidency, his government is uh, in a much weaker position than in the first round because there is not a majority in parliament. So if you then think that Lula must actually do more to hold this coalition together than the first time, although he is now in a much weaker position, what would you think is then the prospect of this government? Do you think this will work or do you think this can become a failure? I think it's a very challenging situation right now. I hope it works. 
I have to say like that. And I think a lot of people hope it works as well. A lot of people in my generation, they were very critical of the PT, of the workers' parties, governments, because we didn't remember that much what it looked like before. So especially this idea of the precarization of higher education, which uh, for me as an academic was very visible now. And before, when I entered university, it was the Lula government and everything was great. The university had resources and I couldn't understand why my university professors were all supporters of the Workers' Party. Now I do, because they remembered what it was like before. I think effectively for a lot of sectors who would be much more critical of Lula and have to be still critical of Lula, this contrast of what Bolsonaro managed to destroy in Brazil will be very motivating to try to support this government to really achieve its goals. But on the other hand, there will always be this threat of the far right mobilizing continuously, much like we see in the US. You have Trump mobilizing his people on the state level and really trying to exert uh, influence on the politics of uh, Biden. So you have this as well. Like Congress has a lot of Bolsonaro supporters. In the Senate, there are people who will be there for eight years with a mandate. So this will be very complicated and very challenging for him. What he probably has on his side is that a lot of parties and a lot of those politicians who supported Bolsonaro are also fine with him if they get what they want for themselves. If they can assure they remain in power on the state level, it doesn't matter to them who governs. I think that's why Bolsonaro didn't have the political support to do a coup because the people who supported him are fine with either government because they know they get what they want. They pressure on this level of getting positions on state companies, of getting money for their electorate and all that. The pragmatism of the what we call centrum uh, probably can be played by Lula to achieve his goals, but they will try to make deals that are much tougher than the first time round. When we summarize all of this, we realize that those people who want to make a change in Brazilian politics and Brazilian society towards a future that is less dominated by colonial power structures, these people are a very diverse set of actors, different groups, which one must somehow bring together through some kind of alliance making that would probably also involve a lot of empathy work. And as somebody who focuses on communication in politics, How do you think political communication must work in order to forge these decolonial alliances? I think one very easy goal is representation. So what Lula managed to do, his cabinet is not completely equal in terms of uh, population or gender, but he did uh, get a lot of important people who from the social movements or uh, public intellectuals into his ministry. For example, Silvio Almeida, who is now the Minister of Human Rights and Citizenship, and he's one of the greatest experts on racial issues in Brazil, and now he's part of the government. He was a key intellectual also in the gov Bolsonaro government to really, really say what's happening, to really give an analysis that takes structural racism into account to really say why it was a colonial government. And now he's part of Lula's government. So that's a very important step. Having people in position of power from minoritized groups, experts. You also have, for the first time, the first minister of indigenous people, Sonia Guajajara, which is an indigenous leader who has been active for a long time. So I think it's important to have a representation of uh, minoritized groups in the government and having then invisible positions to really make important claims and define government policy. This is key because it really shows minoritized groups that they are being seen and uh, recognized as uh, subjects that can also not just get charity from the white uh, PT, workers' party government, but really be part of it. 
On the other hand, this won't be enough if reality doesn't work like that as well. So I think a lot of narratives of hope of people who make it due to measures of this government, this will be important. But they already do it quite well. Like the whole election campaign was based on that. And this mixture of nostalgia, we were already in a better place before and we can make it again. That's the message. And I think it can help to mobilize that his idea of people having prosperity, of having a comfortable life and of having chances and possibilities is very attractive for a lot of Brazilians because it doesn't challenge capitalism necessarily. It doesn't challenge consumption. It makes it um, empowering to, to be part of these dynamics. And I don't think it will be different this time around in this aspect, but it's a very broad narrative that uh, may help his government get support. If you could wish for specific policies, despite of the actual power relations, to be prioritized in Brazil, what would that be? I think one that is already a priority, luckily, is really combating extreme poverty and really bringing back dignified life for as many people as possible. Because a lot of people are suffering from hunger in Brazil right now, and we had already reduced this number dramatically before the last eight years, more or less, six years. So it's important to get this back, I think, because uh, yeah, for people who are in extreme poverty, it's about surviving, so you can't participate in politics anymore. I think that's uh, key. And I'm happy this is a part of the government. And I think one thing that Lula claims he will change, but I think it will be difficult because of the agribusiness and those actors, is his environmental policy. So he, before he has this very development-centered environmental policy, building hydroelectric power plant in the Amazon region, really investing heavily in industries and consumption. And this is complicated because it really also pushed a lot of actors inside the Amazon region that uh, were damaging for indigenous reserves, for example. So I think, I, I hope he takes it seriously, the criticism that has been part of the left for a long time, that his environmental policies become more sustainable, that he invests, for example, in renewable energies, which isn't that much of a discussed issue in Brazil right now, but we have to do it. And I think one important thing is also to have an emancipatory external politics, because Brazil now is a very important, again, he is trying to be a president that makes a lot of foreign policy and places Brazil in South-South uh, relationships and challenges, at least rhetorically, a lot of the global north policies towards the global south and I think it, he has to walk the walk now because he talks the talk but Brazil also does a lot of neo-colonial business with other countries in weaker positions economically like Mozambique for example Valley has a neo-colonial approach to the resources in Mozambique Valley as a mining company from Brazil so we have to break out of this and really be about partnerships that are uh, equal Deborah thank you very much Thank you, Jonas. It's been a pleasure.